is Our American Stories, and we came across a great story in the Wall Street Journal, and the headline was Mascots are Getting a Hall of Fame, and it's making Benny the Bull emotional. And so when you get a headline like that, you got to dig in. And the Wall Street Journal does so many really great Americana stories on their front page. That's the WallStreetJournal.com. Go there and subscribe. WSJ.com. And joining us, well, we had to talk to David Raymond because, well, he's the guy behind all this. And David, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And anytime that we're talking about furry fun, um, I got to be a part of it. Well, David, to start with, you were the original Philly fanatic from 1978 to 1993. And bless your heart, if I could be any mascot anywhere, I would have wanted to be the Philly fanatic. What fun watching him or her. Was there ever a her do his or her thing? Yeah, yeah, there actually is. There's there's, uh, Phoebe, who is the fanatic's mother, and Phyllis, who is... um, Let's just call her his special interest. (laughs) Uh Very nice. And what was that? How did you audition for that job? How did you prepare for that job? Is there is there a way to prepare for the role the way an actor would prepare for a role? Well, it's it's funny, you know, with what we do with our business, you know, we we find and performers train performers. We place performers a full time job. Um, uh, We we help the. uh, the Los Angeles Clippers fill their new performer position, um, and and we do it quite frequently. So there's a real process now. But back when I started, I was the guy that was dumb enough to say yes to having a 300 pound green furry Muppet entertain the same fans at Boots and the Easter Bunny. So um, I was low man on the totem pole. I was an intern from in '76 and '77 with the Phillies, and '78 when they created what looked like a very bad idea on paper. Um, they needed a few things, and one of them was somebody to commit to stay for all the games. And I, I was doing that. I'm a big Phillies fan, um, very good friends with the Carpenter family who, who owned the ball club before Bill Giles and his group purchased it. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a dream for me to be there as an intern, I, and I was doing the worst jobs you can imagine. So I figured, you know, so what? I figured this thing will last for a couple of weeks, and, and it'll be panned in the media and – but I can always say I was the guy that first put on that crazy costume that they that they threw away. So uh, so there was no plan. There was no preparation. Frankly, I had to go to the Phillies and say, what is it that you want me to do? And and they said, go out and have fun. And when I went when I went running out of the room after they told me that, because I thought, well, this is great. I'm getting paid to have fun. They screamed at me, G-rated fun. <laughs> they, were, they just told a college student to go have a good time. And that was his prime directive. So. Um, you know, no, no real plan. It, it, we were just um, it, we were just throwing stuff up on the wall, and this was one of those things that stuck. And what a beautiful thing, and what a beautiful prerogative to be given. I mean, you had a clean slate. You could just about do anything you wanted to do in front of thousands and thousands of people, and you got to hang out in a ballpark. Oh yeah, and and what was even more exciting for somebody my age, you know, twenty years old at the time, um, was that you know I was a huge. Uh, baseball fan and I was a huge Phillies fan I got to mingle and and mix and get to know um, the the Phillies players and and had some still have some long standing friendships with them Uh, and then met the the visiting players even though they didn't know who I was but they they knew who the fanatic was and I it was like living the dream and and actually for a little bit pretending 
uh, like I was a member of a major league baseball team or I was like a player. So, so that was the, you know, the icing on the cake. It was, and you got to, you got to see some pretty great teams. There were some really great Philadelphia Philly team, Phillies teams during that time, weren't there? Well, it was really the beginning of um, un- until 2008, um, it, it, their run. It was the beginning of the Phillies' first real sustained uh, success on the field. So they had the year before they had made it to, um, you know, into the playoffs, but got beat uh, by the Dodgers and. Um, our, our hopes were dashed once again. And when the Fanatic was created, it started that movement into not only uh, winning, um, you know, a National League championship, but winning a World Series. So, yeah. so it was really a wonderful time. Uh, through my tenure, they they made it to three World Series. They they won one and and had a number of, uh, um, you know, those National League championships. So it was really really a, a, the best time uh, to. You'd have been part of the team. Hey, did sure. you get a ring? Did you get a ring? I, I did actually. I got three yes. rings. I, I I have a World Series ring from '80, and I have the two losers' rings from from '83 and '93. And uh, you know, I do a lot of public speaking, and and I do meet and greets afterwards. And people just love to come up and see those rings, try them on, take selfies. So it, it that has been a really fun thing for me to stay connected with the Philadelphia fans that way. So you've had a big fight with your wife. You're really bummed out or you're just hung over. How does the Philly fanatic get psyched up and just get it done? Well, you know, it's, it really is about the power of fun. It, you know, I went through, uh, you know, the, I went through my marriage training program, like a lot of people could, can relate to out there. And uh, I was devastated when my first marriage didn't make it. And my, my mother unfortunately passed away when she was 59 from brain cancer. And those, both of those times were when at the height of my work as a fanatic. And when I was going through those difficult things, I thought times I thought I'm not going to be able to do this. And what I found out very quickly was working in costume was the, the perfect distraction. And I discovered people were drawn to the fanatic and are drawn to mascots because it's this powerful fun. It's, it's the distraction of silly entertainment that for the moment that you're involved, you forget all your problems. So as the performer, I had the ability to be somebody completely different. So I had that distraction continuously or any time that I wanted it. So my job became one of the healthiest functions uh, for my emotion and my, you know, my, you know, for my, my mental activity. You it was bet. the best. You bet. And by the way, I might add that it's a relief and release for a lot of people that go to the park, too. David, I think that's why so many people love sports. A distraction from the ordinary burdens and strains and stresses of regular life. We're talking to David Raymond. And by the way, I love your title, the Emperor of Fun and Games at Raymond Entertainment Group. And he's also the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. We'll get into that in a bit after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, talking to David Raymond. And we're talking about mascots. And by the way, people love their mascots. We're going to get into it in a little bit about college mascots, professional mascots, the variety, the full, the full scope. Some of them funny, some of them serious, everything from wolverines to blue hens. And we're going to cover them all. But a little bit more about you, David, and, and this idea of a Hall of Fame. Um, when did it come to you? And what were the difficulties in bringing this to light? Well, it was like, like a lot of great ideas, uh, it wasn't mine. That's the first thing. Uh, I, I wish it was completely mine, but it was actually my, my employee, Chris Bruce, uh, had come to me after the, um, the sausages were attacked in Milwaukee. If you remember that episode where Randall Simon hit one of the, uh, one of the famous sausages over the head as it ran by the dugout uh, in Miller Park that day. And it became a big sto- news story. I was getting calls from all the major uh, um, news brands, CBS, NBC, and on, uh, Fox, uh, NPR. They all called me, wanted to know what we thought of this, this mascot abuse. And we decided to do a mascot march on the city of Philadelphia to introduce a Bill of Rights for mascots as a <laughs> kind of a silly, fun promotion. And we got so much media coverage, we did it the second year. And that was 2003, 2004. And in 2005, Chris came up to me in the office and said, hey, this is the time for us to have a mascot Hall of Fame. We've talked about it before. You know, let's leverage all this fun we've had. And that's what we did. And we inducted that first year, of course, the fanatic, the Phoenix Gorilla, and the, the famous chicken from San Diego. Yep. The three, arguably the three characters that changed, you know, the genre, the genre of mascots. And, uh, and we had, again, tremendous success. The owner of the Phoenix Suns actually came all the way from, he's a billionaire, Robert Sarver, came to Philadelphia to introduce the Phoenix Gorilla. And, and I knew when he showed up, I said, this is really tapping into a real passion. People love and believe in their mascot brands like they're real. And when they get an honor like this, they take it seriously. Um, so from that point forward, we, we've inducted 17 total uh, mascots including um, 10 pro and seven colleges. And we did a number of live inductions, both and also in front of the, the inductees crowds. And the city of Whiting called me about four years ago and said, we want you here. We're the silly little wacky city that could. And, and it's a perfect, you know, entertainment piece for us. We're building an entertainment complex. We've, we've built a beautiful uh, lakefront on Lake Michigan. It's only 30 miles South, uh, east of Chicago and um, in northwest Indiana, and it was perfect. You know, we went there, we met with the mayor, and sure enough, here we are, groundbreaking. The, the bulldozers just dug the hole the other day, and uh, in 2018 early, we're going to open the doors to the Mascot Hall of Fame. Well, I love some of the puns here. There's a lot of physical education happening there, and the fur is coming. And But the thing is, it's not just all fun and games. In the article, in the Wall Street Journal article, I'm going to read just to touch to you because it's so good. Barry Anderson, who performed for more than a decade at Chicago, at Chicago Bulls games as Benny the Bull, who isn't a member of the Hall, choked up when simply talking about the prospect. I get very emotional about the work, said Mr. Anderson, who is known for his acrobatic trampoline dunks during timeouts and firing T-shirts into the crowd using a bullzooka. Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, the feathery frontman for the NHL Chicago Blackhawks, are considered strong candidates for the Hall this year, says David Raymond. 
And, and what I love about this is you're doing the same sort of marketing and lead up that the NFL Hall of Fame does, that the Baseball Hall of Fame does. And, and how's that working? Is the sports world and the media picking up on this each year? It, it is. We, and that's what we were taught all the way back in 2003 when we did that mascot march. Anytime you get a group of mascots together, it looks funny. So B-roll footage looks great. Um, it, it, it is funny. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect story as a kicker at the end of a broadcast, and, and we just continue to get that type of excitement. However, it's become even more emotional and connected because we're in the midst of a, of a popular vote right now where you, you can go on mascothalloffame.com and vote on the current ballot, which, by the way, fast forward, does include Benny the Bull and Tommy Hawk, uh, as well as Slugger, Stuff from Orlando, Harry Dog from Georgia, um, and, and the Penn State Nittany Lions. So you can vote for any of those right now. And it's, it's just built tremendous passion and emotion with the constituents and the fans and, and alumni and, uh, and faculty um, and people in those organizations. So um, it's been really relatively easy to do. I, I mean, the Phillies just gave us the largest grant uh, that any Major League Baseball team has done. Uh, we're going to other all other major league organizations and asking for philanthropic support. It's it's a nonprofit organization, yep. um, and we're we're teaching STEM and STEAM principles to elementary school kids as the backdrop of the educational piece to probably what would be best described as the Disney of mascots. It's going to be an unbelievable environment for families and people who want to come back again and again. It's just really a wonderful. Um, wonderful facility. And we're talking to David Raymond, and mascothalloffame.com is where you can go. He also runs Raymond Entertainment Group. They're in the serious business of developing and creating full-character branding programs and mascots for sports teams, colleges, and universities, and also corporations. And actually, uh, Our American Stories, we're going to need a mascot too, so we'll have to talk about that offline. (laughs) You know, one of the funny stories I like is, my goodness, people are really politicking for this, like the Oscars. Jazz Bear from the Utah Jazz, Bas- Jazz basketball team submitted a video in which Utah Senator Orrin Hatch extolled the mascot significance in the community. And the video ends with a camera panning out to reveal Jazz Bear <laughs> polishing the senator's shoes. That's really good. I love it, this it stuff. Is, it is good. And, you, and you know, just, it, Lee, it's interesting with the, you know, with the political climate we're in with, um, you know, with all kinds of um, uh, push and pull to whatever side that you're on um, and some nastiness for sure. You know, maybe the end of some political correctness that, that cuts down on creativity. And when you see a guy like Orrin Hatch willing to, you know, have a little bit of fun in a video that's a little less reverent and he does it because it's part of a mascot routine. That is what mascots do. It, 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 we step off of our perch for a minute and say, yeah, I can have a little bit of fun. And if, it can, if we can get somebody like Orrin Hatch to poke some fun at himself, you know, we're, we're – I mean, I, as the fanatic, I, I ran into uh, Ted Kennedy and Ethel Kennedy and, and, and worked with all kinds of celebrities and, and politicians. And every single one of them stops for a moment, gets a hug and a kiss and a high five from, from a mascot. So exactly. it, it works. It really is powerful. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the some of the work you do developing mascots and the like. What what goes into that? Somebody calls you up and says, you know, we're we're thinking about you know something. And I mean, how do how does how does somebody pitch you? How do you do your work? How do you do your business? Well, the first the first thing that happened. I mean, we use we use our backstory as being experts in the business in 38 years of, of being successful. That's how we get people to us. 
But when they start with us, they all want to know what it looks like. And we tell them quickly what it looks like is about fourth or fifth on the priority list. The first thing that you need to do is you need to plan for success, you know, like any other business venture. But second, the most important thing that you do is it's about storytelling. So we tell all of our clients to go back and try to develop the concept of a story that connects with their their organization, their their alumni, their fans, their community, and build a story that automatically will have buy-in from those audience uh, touch points. Uh, Disney taught that. You know, Disney said, you know, when Bambi's mother gets killed in the first few minutes uh, of that movie, you think, my gosh, this is a this is a cartoon movie done by Disney, and here's a, you know, a mother gets murdered in front of its of its young. Uh, how can that be Disney? Well, Disney got you to care about the characters. So for us, it's storytelling and making a flawed character that people can relate to and that they'll care about. If you do those things, you will have a wonderful, powerful character brand. And by the way, it's not always fun in games. You know, a lot of these mascots, like the great, you know, characters, the old cartoon characters like Wile E. Coyote, I mean, they have a little devilish side and playful side to them. And sometimes there are even some fights. Talk about that line that the mascot has to draw between being too nice and being a little devilish. Well, it's, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it, tempers flare uh, when there's passion. So I, I've seen more mascot, actual real mascot fights in the collegiate environment because of, of, of how passionate and important those games are. Um, but, you know, there's occasional fan that's had a few uh, adult beverages that decides that he doesn't like the mascot, uh, you know, putting his arm around his girlfriend. Um, so you, it's a sixth sense that you have or it's common sense that you have to try to keep your wits about you. And, and, and one thing is to make sure you take breaks before you get tired because when you get tired, you make bad decisions. But it's a dangerous environment. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, mascot injuries. So so it's not the easiest job in the world. you got to be safe and take care of yourself and, and use your common sense. You bet. And when we come back, we're going to run through a whole bunch of mascots, some of the favorites here on the show. And we're going to tell a mascot story about old Miss mascot, Colonel Reb, who was sort of put in a lockbox, and then their new mascot had to come in, and, well, nobody likes the new mascot. And what's it like to be a mascot that's not loved? That's got to be a bummer. This is Our American Stories, the Mascot Hall of Fame. More after these messages. stories in our final segment with david raymond the founder of the mascot hall of fame he also runs raymond entertainment group and that's raymondeg.com and by the way he has dave raymond's mascot boot camp which alex should go to too and see what that's like uh we want to go through some great mascots now and uh we want to tell a great mascot story as well about old mrs mascot 
But let's run through the two different types of mascots. They're they're kind in the costumes, sort of the entertainment mascots, and they are there are those beloved prized animals. Um, talk about some of the great mascots you don't have at the Hall of Fame because they're actually living, or do you? Well, you know, it's, it is it is a discussion we've had. We have a criteria, believe it or not. Even even though our tongues firmly planted in our cheeks, we we do have a process, and the criteria does state that it needs to be a costumed character. So it would, uh, based on that criteria, it eliminates uh, either the, the live animals or some of the human beings. Um, but we think that there's going to be a place for those types of characters. We think there's going to be a place for the actual performers, which we're not talking about highlighting yet. Um, you know, and, and certainly some of the human characters. Uh, um, you know, Max Packin was the one who started, well, Al Schacht before him and Mal pa- Max Packin, they were the first human characters that were somewhat like clowns that entertained during baseball games uh, in the fifties. Um, and Max, you know, continued on until, um, you know, the late seventies. Uh, so, so that they kind of set the tone for that, that I think the chicken came after that, but great animal, like, like Uga for the university of Georgia. Um, and Harry dog happens to be the, the, the costume character that's on the ballot this year, but Uga you know, there's a long line of these revered uh, bulldogs that are actually buried uh, right uh, as part of the stadium complex where people go as a pilgrimage to see the graves of the Uggas. I mean, this, it's wonderful love and passion. Uh, War Eagle for Auburn is, an, is another example of, a, of an animal mascot. And, and there, are, there are many um, that are used in the case of stirring up the crowd or, or getting this great passion um, behind those, and they are usually combined with a, um, you know, with a costume character a- as well. Um, Florida State was an example you brought up, where, where they have the chief that comes out and puts the spear into the ground at the fifty-yard line, and, and I mean, you've never heard a stadium erupt any louder than I never he heard does any that. sound like that in my life, and I thought to be that chief just once it and come onto a stadium and do that. It wow, would be phenomenal. And, yep. and, you know, and, and it's a skilled person who can ride a horse and the horse is beautiful. And and and, and I think it's a wonderful reflection, um, you know, of that uh, of that community that has agreed uh, that they appreciate that type of reverence that uh, Florida State gives them. And, and that's why they were not struck down by the NCAA's uh, requirement to do so, because, um, you know, that that Indian uh, tribe had had said this is something that's reverent and revered, and, and we appreciate that type of illustration. Yep. So, so it works. I mean, it, you know, political correctness aside, there's times when these things work because of the pure passion and understanding of the fan base. You bet. And so let's rip through, and I know you can't be partial in these matters, but talk about some of the, 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 the great characters through history and up to the present uh, in college and in pro sports uh, and, and particularly which sports do the best job at this and which sports have the most mascots is football. Does football do a better job as baseball uh, do a better job? Which sport has the most mascots? Well, I, I would, I would say that the, the, the one organization top to bottom that appreciates it, that stewards mascot brands, uh, that merchandises mascot brands, the best is the NBA. Um, and it, and I appreciate the understanding from the New York office. They 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 actually give an award out to the best NBA mascot of the year, uh, and they send people out to watch the NBA environment. And 
uh, game ops and entertainment. They give them awards for each of those. And, the, and the, every year, the mascot, the NBA, gives uh, one of the mascots that title. Uh, so I so I really appreciate what the NBA does. I think the lowest on the scale of those uh, um, of all of those items would be the NHL, or maybe even soccer. And that's in part because the culture and the history of those sports has never been. Um, I guess the best way to describe it has never been fond of the concept of a mascot being powerful. Some of them have them, and some of them do them do them well in the NHL. But for the most part, the culture of hockey and the culture of soccer coming over from Europe makes it difficult for mascots to be successful. Now, I say that with the fact that we are actually working with Manchester City over in the U.K. to work on their character brands and make them stronger. So there are some exceptions. I think in the in the history of, of mascots, I think the collegiate sector is the one um, that has created characters that maybe don't look the best in terms of a costume, but have the most support because of, of the passion. So virtually every single college, you know, from Alabama and Big Al all the way to the, the, the banana slugs. I mean, you've got or, yep. the, or the or the artichokes, believe it or not, with their football team has the word chokes on the side of their helmet, yep. which the which their their coach quipped it's difficult to recruit for a team when you're, <laughs> when you're in the chokes. So so I, I really think that across the board there will always be an illustration of a great character that's been branded well, and then at the same time there are characters that probably should not have even been conceived. Uh, you know, Puffy the Taco comes to mind out in San Antonio for minor league baseball. Um, so so I really think from a professional standpoint the NBA is the best. The collegiate sector, I think, has the most history and passion, and, and they celebrate all of that. So if you go to the University of Kansas, um, you will see the story of the of the original Baby J that was really built in somebody's basement. Yep. Uh, a young young lady who was a big fan built Baby J, and they have the original Baby J costume that she built in a giant case. So, so it, it's kind of all over the map, um, but I think what remains is the passion. Um, and the celebration of, of organizations that people uh, love and, and, and will revere. It's so true. Here at Ole Miss, Colonel Reb was really revered for many years. I, I think a fo- f- few folks in the faculty said that it was offensive, that some people took offense, though it was never really proven. And uh, time and time again, people would do polling, and no one found it offensive. It looked a lot like Colonel Sanders. But they just put it in a lockbox. And then they had people vote. No one wanted to vote. And next thing you know, there's this black bear. It started running around the stadium. And, David, you have to see it because no one gives him a high five. And he, he hides half the time in the big football and basketball games. He hides because the fans don't like him. And there's nothing worse than being a mascot who's not loved at home games, David. I'm thinking yeah, well, I would take pills before well, I... Well, Lee, listen, this is perfect because, you know, I'm the expert. I'm the high-paid consultant. Yeah. So I would say this. It's not a good idea to create a, ba- a mascot that nobody likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much a bad idea. Right. And last, just a last thought, the mascot boot camp. Describe it. we got about a minute left for you. Uh, describe what goes on at that boot camp. It, it's really, it started for serious performers that wanted to get better at their craft, and we treat it very much like an acting class. And there's some, there's enormous... Uh, similarities to what you would do as an actor. Uh, you know, you have to know who you're portraying and what their attitudes are. Um, but what it's grown into is is actually us starting to develop fantasy mascot camps for people who always say, man, I would love to be the fanatic. And for a day of training, 
uh, and then we find an event with costumes and let these, uh, and some are uh, adults as, into their 60s, and some are as young as seven years old. Um, and we, we teach them how to be safe and how to have fun, and then we put them in costumes and take them to an event. And when people come out of that, they, they tell you, like I did the first time I did The Fanatic, that's the greatest thing I've ever done. Uh, never had more fun in my life. Um, you know, some, some people are dealing with, with physical maladies like um, like autism, and, and we make them happy, too. So, so oh, David, I have, I have so many them. physical and mental maladies, and I want to be the Philly fanatic. So I want to come to the boot camp, and I want to take you up on that. That would be nothing would make me more thrilled than to go out in front of an audience and be the fanatic. I've been talking to David Raymond. And he's the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame. And you can go to mascotholloffame.com. Also, Raymond Entertainment Group. That's RaymondEG.com. David Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lee. I loved it. You bet. And this is, again, Our American Stories. We love sports. We love mascots. American stories and we've been talking about mascots because of a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal about the mascot Hall of Fame and there's nothing more American than sports and the way we well the way we put so much of our energy and passion into it some people think it's silly I think it's just fantastic and David Rabin had joined us for the last few segments and he's the founder of the mascot Hall of Fame and it was himself the original Philly fanatic of the Philadelphia Phillies now we're going to bring you one of the other mascots mentioned in that article in the Wall Street Journal, the man behind another legendary mascot known as Clutch the Bear of the Houston Rockets. And joining us now is Robert Bodwin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, uh, you bet. And should we call you the artist formerly known as Clutch? Yeah, the deadmascot.com, the artist formerly known as Clutch.com, RobertBoldwin.com. I answer to all these names and all these websites. Excellent. So I, love I love it. I love it. So tell us how you got to be Clutch. How did this happen? You know, I think my story is very similar to a lot of professional mascots. You know, there's only about 125 guys nationwide that do this full-time for a living. And I think the vast majority would kind of say that they fell into it. Uh, it's not like you set out as a child uh, to be a mascot performer uh, as a profession. Um, I didn't even know it was a profession when I started doing it in high school and then got to Delaware at the university. I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, did it for the Wissahickon High School. I was the Trojan. Um, I wore a, My face showed, and I wore body armor and painted my face and wore a kilt. And then when I got to college, I started the mascot there, the University of Delaware Blue Hen, a UD character in 1993, and just kind of met some cheerleaders freshman year, told them I did it in high school, and they said, yeah, you should try out. Uh, so I did, and I, I won the role, did it in, in high school or college, and then started to realize that there's guys that did this full-time year-round as a profession. Uh, and that's kind of when I started aspiring to do it. Uh, met Dave Raymond that you mentioned earlier, who... Uh, has been on your program. He was the original fanatic. He had just retired when I started the character at Delaware, 
but his father was our football coach, Tubby Raymond, and uh, Dave was on the sidelines all the time. So I kind of looked up to Dave as a uh, trailblazer and, uh, you know, kind of a founder of the profession. Uh, and uh, then I kind of realized that people do do this and uh, started auditioning uh, for jobs come uh, the summer after my junior year and won the Rockets audition in 1995 and uh, kind of went to school to be an accountant but came out wearing fur. Unbelievable. And, uh, I spent, spent 21 <laughs> years at the Rockets. Uh, and I got to be honest with you, um, I by far, with this career by far exceeded my wildest dreams. I, you know, I first got into it to kind of be funny and goof around and be center of attention in a costume and that license to kind of break the, the rules of social engagement, invade people's space and uh, improv. But in the time that I've spent here, I've gotten to do so much more with it. We've done 1,750 school shows in front of 1.2 million Houston youth. I did a school show last year. A teacher came up to me at the end of it and said, man, that show was even better the second time around. And I said, oh, were you a teacher at the school, uh, you know, that I did the year before and transferred? And she said, no, I saw it in fourth grade. <laughs> so uh, it, it made me feel both insulted that I'm now 42 yeah. and uh, like, I, in, like I affected a generation of Houstonians with their, their education. Uh, we wrote seven different storybooks. I've traveled the globe to 12 different countries, performed on armed forces entertainment tours on military bases overseas. Uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And uh, the Houstonians that have allowed me into their hearts over the years, I thank immensely. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you received yeah. attention in an Internet meme that involved a man being shot down during a halftime marriage proposal at a Rockets <laughs> game in 2008 after the woman said no and stormed <laughs> off the court. Tell us what happened next. Well, um, without divulging any trade secrets, uh, some of those bits are staged, some aren't. And we kind of leave our fans guessing as to which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, I, I remember that bit well. This was back when uh, YouTube was starting to gain more and more popularity for watching stuff. And I think we got 11 million hits on that in just a week or so's time. And we started getting calls from around the globe. A, uh, a TV station in Japan did a story on it. And uh, it, was, it was a memorable moment uh, that I, I definitely consider in one of the top of my career. And really had the, uh, the crowd at first shocked and in disbelief. And then kind of offended. They were mad at that woman for saying no to, uh, to the proposal, at least publicly. And uh, created quite a, a, a stir. Well, whether it was true or not, we just, we're just, you're not going to divulge, are you? You're not giving it up, are you? <laughs> right here, you can make you know, history. You can tell they us. They always say that a, a true uh, magician never reveals the secrets uh, to his trick. That is And so I true. kind of view this as, uh, as that, magic uh, and the whole craft of mascotting. You've been a craft of mascotting. Can you tell us one of the crazier things you've seen or experienced as a mascot? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. In 1998, I accidentally shot Catino Mobley in the chest with our T-shirt gun, and we haven't had a T-shirt gun at the Houston Rockets since then. <laughs> um, one of the cheerleaders was looking one way but running the other way and accidentally banged into me. And we had cheerleaders on the court to throw to the lower level because this gun which we affectionately called the BFG. I'll 
let you figure out what the F stands for. Uh, but the BFG was so powerful, we only shot it to the upper level. And they had to throw to the lower level. Well, she's looking one way, uh, bangs into the back of me, and I'm in the costume. I don't see her coming. Knocks me forward to my knees, sets off the gun, and I'm only 20 feet from the huddle where Rudy T is instructing the team at a timeout. The T-shirt rockets right into rockets, so to speak, aha, uh-huh, <laughs> into the huddle, drops Catino Mobley like a sack of bricks. Right there. They had to cart him off the court. You want to talk about, like, and I had no clue what happened because I'm in the costume. I just get knocked down. I heard the gun go off. I jump right back up and finish the T-shirt toss, and there's the stupid bear with his big grin painted on his face like, that. who wants a shirt? Right after I just shoot our starting forward in the chest and knock him out of the game. Um, I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, my first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. And unbeknownst <laughs> to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next door at the camera and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he's, you know, kind of humped me from behind and then I thank him for it. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on about the stories. I ruined an MLK Day parade by accident one time. Uh, we do this MLK Day parade every single year. We're one of the highlights of the parade. I'm in the van. Uh, I'm in my big mascot van. I'm sitting on the hood, and I shoot off streamers one after another, cannons, streamer cannons. Well, my assistant had accidentally packed these Mylar metallic uh, streamers. Well, we're going right by the big main grandstand area and the booth with the DJ and the music and the PA announcer. And, of course, I want to lay it on thick there because that's the big, important, crowded area of the parade. And what I don't realize is most of these cannons are paper cannons, but he gives me a Mylar one that's metal, and it goes up into the air, catches onto the power lines, and blows one of the transformers out. (laughs) I hear a huge explosion, and again, I'm in costume. I'm like, what the heck was that? thinking that like a bomb went off or something and i had no clue what it was well what it was was one of the transformers and i blew the power out for like a four block radius including what was powering the entire stage at the parade <laughs> so the pa the music everything went out the rest of the day oh that's a great and job i don't realize this until after the fact so i'm like oh great i just ruined the martin luther king jr parade well what a great story and you got about a minute left here tell us what it was like to win a spot in the Mascot Hall of Fame? Oh, it was great. It was uh, humbling, uh, especially because it's from a lot of the guys that do this every day for their, their career and their life, your peers, uh, not just, you know, uh, people that really know the insides of the, the profession and the daily grind of it and the, and the challenge of being creative and writing your own material, producing it, directing it, and uh, starring in it. 
Uh, so it was humbling. It was great. It was one of the great honors of my career. I can't wait to see them uh, finish construction on it and visit it up in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, so it, it, was, it was great. Well, we look forward to meeting you there. We want to be there when, when the induction occurs. We've been talking to Robert Bodwin, and he is the artist formerly known as Clutch. And you can go to robertbodwin.com and catch up with his life, where he is at, and thank you for those great, great stories, Robert. Man, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing inspirational speaking now as a career in marketing consulting. So any of your listeners out there that uh, would like to reach out to me for a speech or for some consulting help, I would love to entertain uh, a discussion with them. You bet. That's robertbodwin.com, and that's Robert B-O-U-D-W-I-N.com. The artist formerly known as Clutch. And that is Clutch from the Houston Rockets, their dear and endearing mascot. This is Our American Stories. as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race, and it's quite a life story. And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb, and, my goodness, a racing icon would be, well, just selling him short. And joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born, and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy, um, and the region is uh, Istria, and however, now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War II, and uh, uh, that region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been. But uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito. And uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to... Uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become uh, refugees basically uh, back in mainland Italy and uh, and my family chose that you know the latter part uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship and uh, 
We were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to um, to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here, in, in fact, in Nazareth, where I live now. And um, and this, it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would. Uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. And that's the story. And what did your dad do, Mario, there uh, in, in Italy? What did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp. Almost, a, it sounds like a not a prison camp because it wasn't. But a refugee camp couldn't have been that that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and uh, but uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question. My dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh, land holdings from the family uh, on his. Uh, on his mother's side, because he lost his um, his parents at age two and four, respectively, and he was raised by uh, a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side owned uh, about two thousand acres of land, about twenty one hundred acres, and uh, seven tenants. And my dad was the administrator of that of those holdings. Then basically, he was a farmer and. Um, so he had no other skills, you know, when we, um, uh, when he moved on. And uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And, uh, and when we were, while we were in a camp, as you said, I mean, uh, conditions were very, very basic. But, uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always... Uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and uh, never hungry you know he always took took care of the family uh, that's a very proud man and that's something that I've always looked up to be, to him because of uh, of that he had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way and he never quit Mario it sounds like he never quit on you his family despite the the toughest circumstances so you're living in Italy uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol. It was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion. Uh, for Ferrari, and as you can imagine, as an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids, uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself. Uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something 
that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what, had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives. And uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong. And uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought, and when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, that was impacted by political tumult in Europe, and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth, the life of Mario Andretti, when we come back. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Around the world, ask anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say Mario Andretti. You just heard from auto sport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You, you come into a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth. Not far away is a little dirt track, from what I, from what I understand, Mario. Right. And you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well... First of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually um, a car a car that was uh, brand that was very successful in NASCAR racing, and that was uh, not popular that car here at this local level. But uh, but we chose that, you know, with the help of some other, you know couple other friends uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> yep. and uh and we followed that advice and um uh, and we built that car and and uh but uh we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh here um you know he knew that we were following motor racing and um and we were all in and as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something. And uh, then Alberto Scotti is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955. Uh, on the way over on the ship, Conte Biancamano, uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever 
uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seeing for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, "Oh, kids are crazy. Don't even think about it." Type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not in any way understand how strong we uh, believed in it and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, I took, we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything. Uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19. And we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had, uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses. And uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days, obviously there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that. And uh, we started racing at age 19 without my dad knowing. And the only defense that we had on that, uh, or the buffer that we had there, was the uh, language barrier, you know, because my dad obviously did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, you, you know, you, things, because we were winning races. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I keep saying this, uh, which is a fact, and uh, at, at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- telling him how good he was at his job. So, um, again, it wasn't until the end of the season, at the very last race, an invitational race, that, uh, Aldo uh, almost killed, you know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which, uh, you know, we had a, um, a actually a fractured skull and all that. So he was in a coma for, you know, for a long time. And uh, he was even given his last rites that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. And he almost felt vindicated, you know, see, I told you guys, you know, <laughs> type of thing. Yep, yep. And by the way, we, we recall we... We spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story, and Aldo had said it was, he was sure glad you had to tell him you guys yeah, were racing. It, uh, when Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while after he opened his eyes and so forth. You know, it took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, "I'm sure." You, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man. <laughs> okay, all right, we got him back. <laughs> uh, so your you, your career, your your brother was racing, uh, but you you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who were who were key people in your life, Mario? Who, who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you, your well, team? I mean, there, was, uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. 
and uh, and my one of the first ones that actually helped was uh, my uh, now my wife my wife's father uh, and uh, and his partner they you know I needed to buy a midget a midget uh, car a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter and that's where a lot of the owners will scout drivers you know for the full size midgets for the regular season and uh and i was i bought a uh, a famous car and i made a deal with uh with earl uh earl hoke who was uh you know my uh hoke is my uh my wife's maiden name and uh and they invested in that car and that's what got me going was another plateau a launching pad if you will because uh, i won some races i was competitive and uh, i got noticed and i got a, a really a good ride uh, with the mateka brothers in uh, midget which were running the ardc club american race drivers club uh, which was a very prominent midget uh, series uh, with all the icons of major racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of major racing is of the era. And, uh, and that, you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, uh, Rufus Gray, the individual, actually owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names, like Judd Larson, driving for him and, and USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. And he gave me a ride, and he became, you know, uh, sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing, because even though I was not the top, category sprint cars is a step below the championship cars uh, but i was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrate into sprint cars like aj foyt roger mccluskey dumb mm-hmm. branson all the top drivers would be driving this parnelli jones driving in these uh, sprint cars and i would be driving against them and all of a sudden i was started winning there and uh so uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get it right because uh, the main driver is hurt. Yep. Those days was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and, and uh, and earn my my way you know uh, into a solid ride so uh, again it was just uh, everything was by chance you know there was no guarantees anywhere you had uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's really the way it worked out for me you just had to be there and seize the opportunity and that's what so many greats and so many people who quote get lucky or quote have opportunity they're just there and you're there often enough and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life this is lee habib this is our american stories our american dreamers series with mario andretti continues after these words from our sponsors 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti. And we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days where she was in some ways helping support the entire project. And how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll tell you what, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and and, uh, and, and indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because, uh, you know, Lee, uh, uh, you know, even as an individual, uh, she, I knew that she would take care of, like, you know, we got married, I got married young and, and the career was going, I had kids and I didn't have a steady job. I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be, yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right. but, but it worked and, and she worked, you know, like even to give you an idea when, um, uh, when, 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 when I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three quarter midget that uh, her dad had financed, she was working and, uh, she was pregnant and, uh, on her way to one of the races, uh, she's, she's just like sobbing a little bit, you know, I said, what's, what's the matter? Deanna? She said, I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you, she was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. <laughs> I said, how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, oh, no, this and that's so. <laughs> As you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week, you know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> and, so, and things like that. But, uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously, you know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and again, you know, she, she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today, but uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she, she had no choice, I guess, uh, you know, and she knew that this was our path and uh, even with the kids and uh, she just uh, always made the best of it you know but um, she carried the burden you know the family makes sure everything is running smoothly and and uh, and at the same time supporting me by just you know just just doing her thing you know being behind and uh uh it was never like what what I liked it was the stability that she created because uh uh, she always very in, in check with her emotions, you know, and um, and it was never like, uh, you know, ticker tape parade if I brought home a trophy or, uh, you know, like a, a black stripe on her arm if I didn't, you know. It was, right. Everything was even, you know. The hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really, uh, that was uh, what I needed. Well, lucky you, lucky you, Mario, is all and every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and, you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like yeah. an actor or a minor league ball player. But, my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that, the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are, you're a person who puts risk into the calculus, uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living. 
Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the 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 danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the '60s, '70s, they, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the '60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And uh, and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made. Uh, she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies, and and then uh, you know my best friend when uh, Billy Foster when he when he was killed, and uh, Judd Larson, and on and on. I mean, we lost so many. Uh, Ronnie Peterson. I mean, she was uh, obviously always the one that uh, thinking. You know, when is is he going to come home? You know, this uh, uh, after this race. So uh, the spectrum of of that was always there. And it was real. Uh, there was, we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and um, and and I'm sure that, that that was always, you know, anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never, you know, never dwell on that side, obviously. Uh, so I was pretty serene, but uh, but her, I could see that side of of, of her just dealing with this uncertainty. Um, you know, all the time, every week, uh, had to be a, a you know tough moments, and, uh, and 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 again, you know, just uh, 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 you could tell there were you know I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, because you know now watching you know my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth. Uh, all of a sudden, I have uh, you know different anxieties you know yep. that I ever experienced by driving uh, by being active myself. Yep, I think most coaches know this when, or, or most athletes when they're playing, it's one thing. Then they watch their kids play, and it's like, oh, that's what my father was going through. Now, yeah. I, now I get go. it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades, and we're, we're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things, what they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series. You were obviously were named Driver of the Year in three different decades, remarkable. Driver of the Quarter Century, and of course Driver of the Century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix, um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big big time race, and that's where my dream really began uh, or solidified. And uh, and here we go, you know, I win. In that place, and then uh, I also clinched the world championship there in Monza. You know, so uh, that has you know personally that nothing comes close to that. Uh, the others are obviously there. Are many races, they're very. Every race has got its own uh, shining star, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, but uh, when you look at the classics, those are the ones that. Uh, you're judged by like uh, winning Indianapolis or or uh, or winning Daytona type of thing, you know, because uh, 
again, those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series. Uh, so, you know, everybody would focus on that. I mean, there were there were others. For me, uh, uh, from a personal level, however, you know, here I go. I go fourth is uh, uh, winning over my son Michael on Father's Day in Portland in 1986, <laughs> you know, and yep. uh, beating him by seven one-thousandths of a second, you know, that type of thing. You know? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? And, and uh, when I look back and uh, how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole or how many times we were on podium together while we were even teammates, you know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had always there with him. When we come back, Some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. Mario was one of those drivers. He was one of the bars that that, uh, that people would compare themselves to. I mean, for sure, when I started driving, you know, if I could if I could keep up with Mario, or if I could keep up with my dad, I'm doing good. And if I beat them, then I did great. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife, but ultimately this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, You know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession? Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. 
Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have uh, a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, uh, then it's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's... Uh, a lot that goes behind the strategies that go behind it, um, and um, and again, uh, uh, I I was always I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. I just wanted to drive. But the driver is is a driver. However, always had um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team. And and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And um, I draw for some of the, you know, the, the icons in our sport over the years in different disciplines. And I was very, very, obviously, this is what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results. You know, it wasn't always uphill for you, too. I mean, there were dry spells. And by the way, athletes experience this, too, Mario. How did you handle that? How did you cope? I mean, when things just aren't firing, so to speak, on all cylinders, how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, there's, you, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And uh, and that I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your uh, your will. You know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements—they're so important because uh, again, it's <laughs> it's not going to be always a bed of roses. When you're at the top. Uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last, and you fight like crazy, you know, to uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You got to start, keep searching, keep searching, and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and uh, income. That is, if you had tried to pursue. Uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where really almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if... Um, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but... It became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. 
uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his, uh, you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved, uh, uh, my uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was, uh, an aviator in the aviation, he was in, in, had motorcycles, he had, you know, it was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just if we would have remained there, I probably, um, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah, now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life. Well, you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know, you could always do something better, you mm-hmm. know, by looking at it now, okay, I might have made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo, and I went with my heart. You know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend, uh, engineer there and so forth, and I thought Alfa Romeo was, was ready to, uh, to spring, you know, into the, uh, to the top uh, in Formula One, and, and instead I, and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake call it miscalculation yeah you could you know now that i have a chance to revisit but overall lee i have no regrets i have no regrets whatsoever you know that the the positive way way overcome the negatives uh and so i again no regrets that's great what gives you mario at this stage of your life your deepest sense of fulfillment the deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah, and, and faith, does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that, that part of your life. Faith does. Uh, and, uh, again, uh, not just the fact that um, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle Priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything, even then. Uh, and uh, it was just that, but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Lorenzo Tamberlini, who uh, really uh, somehow, without forcing things, uh, like uh, instill certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep, and, and always knowing that uh, you can't do things alone. You know, you need some help, whether it's, you know, it's, it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and, and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and somehow it, it, it works for you. It always did and it always will. And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, 
uh, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have? Well, uh, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I, I'm fortunate that we have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight, uh, we play tennis, we water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic, and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some some men is the thrill of speed and the thrill of competition. And that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older if that's who you are and it's baked into your DNA. Mario, I, I so appreciate you uh, taking the time. And I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory... Uh, was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in my three-quarter midget. Yeah. Well, I, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. <laughs> you bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to ouramericannetwork.org. dot org.